Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So we're entering into the bulk of the narrative of the book of Judges, and, and as we talk, I'll kind of remind you of what's going on uh, and, and why we're even reading Judges. But chapter 2 gave us the framework. Chapter 2 and chapter 1, which we did the last two weeks, are introductions. And chapter 2 actually gave us a framework. It kind of said every, from here on out, the book of Judges is this cycle that's going to happen over and over again. And we're going to encounter this cycle over and over again the rest of the quarter. And what happens is this. Israel follows after other gods. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. They fall into slavery and subjugation. They cry out for deliver. God sends someone to deliver them. They have rest. And then they fall after other gods again. And if you want a quick way of remembering that, a friend of mine said it this. It's sin, slavery, supplication, then salvation. And that is the book of Judges over and over again. And what you'll realize if you read the book is the same verses show up over and over again. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord sent a deliverer. Israel cried out. The same word-for-word verses show up seven to eight times throughout these cycles. So we're going to watch it unfold, and you might feel like, okay, well now I know what the rest of the quarter is about, because we're going to do the same story again with a different judge next week. We're going to look at Deborah and Barak. And you might think, well, this is going to get repetitive. But if you talk to anybody on the football team, they don't practice a play once and master it. It's repetition, it's repetition, it's repetition. When your teacher explains something in CS or math one time, that doesn't mean you've mastered it. Right? Repetition, practice, P-sets. Right? When you walk through a company's financial one time, that doesn't mean you understand their company or their industry. And if Christianity is saying, this is the story of all creation, this is not one football play, this is not one company, this is not one CS principle, if, and, and the goal is for it to penetrate our soul and redefine reality for us, then of course we're not going to get it the first time through or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the sixth, that actually the book of Judges is probably far too short, if anything. Um, It's a lifelong journey. So my invitation to you actually for the rest of the quarter is to keep coming back and listening to the same story over and over again. Um, There are different details within each story, that they're the teaching points, and that's what we'll talk about. But the story is the same. We were made to connect with God. We chase other gods. We despair and cry out. He sends a deliverer, and there's rest. So let me pray for us as we consider this story. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you uh, that you've given it to us, and I pray the details would grab us, um, and that we would find that there's an amazing thing happening even in these odd ancient stories, and that you're showing us who you are, you're showing us your character, and you're also teaching us about ourselves. So be with us, Father God. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, so the other day, y'all might... Some of you know I drive a Honda Ridgeline, and the other day somebody told me, like, I always see your car on campus now. I used to never see it. And what they meant was not that it wasn't, it also used to be on campus all the time as well, but the back of my tailgate now, you can see out there, is just mashed in. And the reason why is because I was trying to turn around on Santa Teresa, and as I was trying to turn around, I was backing out of a parking space and didn't look behind me. And there was a half-ton landscaping truck, and I backed right into the corner of it, and it just destroyed the back of my truck. 
The reason I tell you that is because of this. I don't have any excuses. There's not like, well, somebody was distracting me. I wasn't, you know, like they weren't there or they backed into me. I just ran into a truck (laughs) because I didn't look, because I'm an idiot, right? And the reason I tell you all this is because actually one of the main points of this text is going to be, and this is the sermon application right up front, is we need to learn to laugh at our own stupidity. We need to take ourselves a little less seriously. What, that's what this text is supposed to happen to Israel when they read it. I'm, I can't even give you all all the satire that's happening in the Hebrew language here. I'm going to give you some of it so you can get a sense of it. But it's so full that we would spend all night on technical Hebrew grammar details to pick up on all the different jokes that actually this story has within it. And um, the first application is that Israel would read this and they'd be like, Man, we are a bunch of idiots. And they would laugh at themselves. And they would stop taking themselves quite so seriously. And our culture is in the business of generating and protecting our self-importance. We love taking ourselves too seriously. The need to justify ourselves, to make something in ourselves, to validate our personality and our preferences has made us very defensive and proud. And uh, a great comedian, Aziz Ansari, does a great job of skewering uh, guys who get in fights at bars. He talks about how these are the worst kind of people in the world. And I think he helps us capture this point a little bit. He says, there's always a guy, I hope this is not you, but it might be. It was me at some point. There's always a guy with a button-down shirt and a backwards baseball hat on. And he's in a crowded bar, and he says, hey, watch it, man, watch it, man. You're pushing on me. You're pushing on me. Are you all familiar with this bit, anybody? <laughs> I had a drink in my hand. I could spit on my shirt. You need to watch where you're going. If you watch where you're going, we won't have a problem. And this guy is the guy who's always getting on fights in bars. How wildly insecure do we have to be about our masculinity and identity to be threatened by someone bumping into us in a bar? And that's what Ansari is making fun of. But actually, we're all that guy. We're so insecure at any moment because of the things that we base our identity on when they get threatened. And it seems that we can't laugh at ourselves anymore. The internet is where everybody is screaming, especially Facebook now, with all their links to articles on on BuzzFeed, where everybody is screaming, 10 things you need to know about introverts. And introverts wrote that article because introverts are taking themselves way too seriously and now oppressing the rest of us with all their, you need to understand me as an introvert. If you're an introvert here tonight, we love you. Jesus loves you. It's okay. Extroverts have the same articles. The introvert ones are just the ones that are killing me. I, but it's everything, right? If you're an introvert, I want to I want to buy you a cup of coffee at Phil's. Please let me know afterwards. But you know, like there's ten things you need to go know about dating a CrossFit guy. I saw that one. Um, here's the one I saw tonight on the way. I was like just trying to find other ridiculous lists. Nineteen nineteen things you need to know before you date someone sarcastic. The sarcastic people can't laugh at themselves anymore. That's how bad it's gotten. (laughs) That we take ourselves entirely too seriously. That we're so threatened and we're telling everybody else, here's how you need to treat me, here's how you need to understand me, and we're telling everybody else, they've got to accommodate their entire lifestyle and understanding to me. I hardly understand myself. So if you're thinking, can Britain, I, want, I wish Britain understood me better. Just so you know, I never will. I'm lost trying to figure me out. Y'all are lost trying to figure you out. Of course you can't figure out your introvert roommate, right? So give everybody a break, all right? All of these kind of things 
or outworkings of ways we're taking ourselves too seriously. And when we do that, we oppress everybody else, thinking that their problem and the world's problem is they don't understand you. They don't understand me. And this story gets Israel and it gets us saying, okay, my problem is actually I'm an idiot. That's the main problem in my life. Right? And there are examples of this. You know what the right thing to say is when, you have, when you're hungover or during the walk of shame or the next morning? The right thing to say is like, well, that didn't work. I'm an idiot. That's what you feel, and we don't want that to be the right thing to say, but actually somewhere all of us know that's the right thing to say. You know? Look at the pride that forces us to defend ourselves in relationships with our parents, our roommates, our friends. And do you, do you ever just find yourself angry about the smallest things and you're like, I am an idiot. Why do I get so angry about these tiny things? The right response is like, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot. I'm so petty. I take myself too seriously. Keep finding out. I keep finding out. I make fun of CrossFit people because I am a CrossFit person, right? I keep finding out I'm the CrossFit idiot that I mock all the time. And after reading and rereading the story, there's so much irony and there's so much humor and satire here. I can't help but believe that the point was for Israel to read it and just be like, we're a bunch of doofuses. And if you come to RUF tonight for self-esteem, tonight's just not the night for that. (laughs) I think God wants us to walk out of here laughing at ourselves and saying, I'm a doofus, God is good. That's the sermon application. It's not sophisticated. I want to see, like, Facebook status updates. I learned at RUF tonight. Um, So two points. This just shows us the ridiculousness of sin and the unexpected deliverance. And we'll just go through that. Israel starts out, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you're here, we talked about this at length last week, so I won't belabor belabor it. But this is not Israel simply misbehaved. It's Israel forgot the love of God. Israel chased after other things besides God, gave themselves to other hopes and to other idols and other dreams, to other lovers, things other than God himself. Our behavior is always a fruit of what we hold most dear in our heart. So when it says Israel did evil in the sight of their Lord, it meant Israel chased after other gods. And in response, God strengthens Eglon against Israel, and they fell to subjugation to Eglon and the Moabites. Now, what's happening here? This is where the story starts to get weird and humorous. I'll put it, I'll I'll retell this briefly, how an Israelite would have heard, and they fell to Eglon and the Moabites. This is how they would have heard it in Alabama, okay? Um, In 2007, Nick Saban, second best coach in college football history behind Bear Bryant, Nick Saban's Alabama team lost to Louisiana Monroe in 2007. Now, y'all know that, and you can tease me with that. I didn't want to share that with you because it's hard for me. But they lost to Sunbelt Conference 4-8 Louisiana Monroe in 2007. That's how this text reads to an Israelite. Israel lost to an enemy they had no business losing to, and they were subjugated to him for 18 years. That's how they would have taken it. Now, why would they have taken that way? What are we, how do we know that? Because do you know where else the word Eglon shows up in the Old Testament? It shows up in the book of Exodus when Israel builds an idol to worship. And that idol is called a golden eagle. The Hebrew word eagle is calf or cow. What we are told here is this is the cow king. 
And we're told later, right, he's a very fat man. The name given to the king is that defeated them is the king, the fat cow king. Verse 17 tells us Ehud was presenting the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, a very fat man. And you see later just how fat he was. The writer is painting Eglon as a buffoon, as a bumbling idiot, a very fat man. And you have to know about kings at that time. And if you're familiar with stories of like David and Saul and some of the other stories of kings in the Old Testament, kings were warriors. They were not refined diplomats with soft hands. Kings were almost always the best warrior in their army. Kings at that time were more like starting quarterbacks in the NFL than they were like hedge fund managers. They were more like William Wallace than they are like Chris Christie, right? So when you imagine Eglon, he's an idiot king. He's a buffoon. He's incompetent. And he defeats Israel and keeps them in subjugation for 18 years. Now, why is that important? Because the Israelites are hit with this, that they're subjugated to this fat buffoon, that they lost to Louisiana Monroe... For 18 years they served him. They worshipped and they paid tribute to idols, to the fat cow. This teaches us that sin is ridiculous. That sin is asking things of this world, asking things of this world to be for you what only God can be. Psalm 115 says this about the things of this world. Their idols are silver and gold. God is mocking us. Our idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. It's like, really, your, your God is going to be things you can make? They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. Have hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So all those who trust them. God is making fun of worshiping other th- anything other than himself. He's mocking the worship of idols. And our sin needs some good mockery. Because it's ridiculous. It's actually a form of laziness. To be subjugated to this kind of king is lazy, isn't it? C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, you, you might have heard this quote, It would seem that our Lord finds that our desires are not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Have you been in that place where you're controlled by the same things over and over and over again? It controls you, and those things are ridiculous. You know they are. You're like, why does this have control over me? Right? Other people's opinions, your politics, having to be right, right, getting the points back on the test, whatever it is. They're silly. You know it doesn't make sense to be so controlled by something this crazy but that it still has a hold on you. You can even totally explain to yourself and others why this shouldn't be controlling me. Like, why do I act this way? Why is this such a big deal to me? You can explain it, but it still has control over you. You know it's insufficient to bear the weight of your joy, to bear the weight of your identity, the weight of your salvation, this anger, whatever it is, the FOMO, the, the goals, right? It's crazy. But tomorrow you're going to serve them again. And that says something about us. Part of what C.S. Lewis is saying is this. Our problem with sex is not that we like it too much. It's that we like it too little. God made this incredible thing. 
And He intended it to be bound together with, with making culture and building communities and being united to someone in perpetuity. And we've extricated it from its context and to settle for crappy sex. The problem is we don't like it enough. Right? The problem with our joy and happiness is that we don't want it very much. The problem with Stanford and Silicon Valley, the problem it has with excellence is that people are not really obsessed with it here. People settle for so little here. That's what God would say is the major problem with Silicon Valley. Is that people settle for the cellophane, thin, facsimile, papery version of shalom in the form of Teslas and iPhones and Stanford pedigree instead of what is offered in God. Wholeness, new heavens and new earth, the joy of intimacy with your Creator, no more shame, no more guilt, truly loved and truly known. Israel's subjugation to Eglon is making a mockery of our sin. Israel's looking at themselves and being like, really? We settled for this? We, we let this guy? We were dominated by his gods? We're lazy. And we find it easier to pay tribute to a fat king, to weak idols, to serve something silly and to be controlled by something ludicrous. Our unending instinct to be defensive, to let criticism completely undo us, to dismiss people who just don't understand you, or, conf- or dismiss people who confront us. Our, all those reactions reveal that our justification and our identity and our salvation is tied to these things, and these things are so precarious and so ephemeral and so fragile that we have to remove people from our lives that might threaten them. We have to defend them. We have to rage against or ignore criticism of them. Pride is our heart's reaction to being pissed that not everybody's impressed with us. Pride is just a different way of manifesting insecurity. Sin is ridiculous. We're addicted to ridiculous things. And that's what God is saying as He paints Israel's subjugation to this buffoon king. And he sends an unexpected deliverer. Second point, verse 15, Israel cried out. They're exasperated. They begin to see through the fire of their sin. They're tired of settling. Seeing the foreign gods, the things that they gave themselves to couldn't suffice. Instead, they were enslaved. And they wanted freedom. And maybe for you tonight, maybe the application of the sermon is simply to cry out. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you actually, literally in the way the word literally actually means. Need to cry out in the quiet or in your room or with your roommate. I will cry out with you for deliverance. Israel cried out and the Lord raised up a deliverer. And just like the king that conquered Israel is not who you'd expect, God's deliverer is not who they would have expected. It's Ehud the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. We're given these descriptors again and they stand out. And all these details are adding to the satire and the humor of the passage. Because Benjamin is a tribe in Israel, and he was a Benjaminite. But the word Benjamin means son of my right hand. Ben is the Hebrew word, son. Yamin is the word right hand. Son of my right hand. And so now you immediately see the irony. Ehud, of the tribe, son of my right hand, a left-handed man. Now, you, what you all know is right hand is a position of power and prestige. It's where we get the term, my right-hand man, and all that kind of stuff. And Ehud was of that tribe. But then you get that detail. He's left-handed. Now, what's happening right here? Well, actually, the word is not left-handed. 
The word is, and normally I don't go into all this language, but it's really fun for this passage. It's iter yad yamino. And if you hear it, you'll hear that the word right hand shows up in there again. The word is not left hand. What's being said is Ehud, a Benjaminite, who is bound in his right hand. It, uh, iter yad yamino. His right hand is stuck. Here's what it's saying. It was Ehud, the Benjaminite, the cripple. The handicap. And in ancient times, whose right hand was broken, whose right arm was malformed and unusable. In ancient times, emissaries were often cripples. Because when you would send someone to go visit a king, you would send someone harmless. It was a gesture of peace. So when you send someone to pay tribute, they would send a cripple, someone handicapped, someone that didn't pose any kind of threat. And so Ehud is allowed into a private audience with Eglin because he's harmless. You would never let a warrior have a private audience with your king. That would, make, that would be crazy. But a weak, maimed cripple who couldn't even use the hand you use for war, he's safe. But the scene unfolds. Right? Ehud, I have a secret message for you, king. Everybody leaves. Ehud is harmless, but he has his double-edged sword hidden inside his right thigh. There's a, there's a lot more cool Hebrew grammar going on right there. The sword is actually called double-mouthed, not double-edged. It's making fun of Eglin's weight. Um, doors closed, servants gone. Eglin leans forward and he stabs uh, Ehud. Yeah, Eglin leans forward and Ehud stabs him in the gut. It's a little graphic. He's so fat that the hilt goes in after the blade. And I'm like, I don't want to imagine this. Because studying this text, I imagine a lot already, and it will distract me while I'm trying to teach it. But his fat rolls fold over the sword, and he loses the sword inside the guy. This is just in the Bible, okay? And as it, you know, and then he evacuates his bowels. We'll keep that sad, tasty, right? Or tasteful. That was weird. Okay, I'm glad you laughed, even though it's because I'm an idiot. But <laughs> this is humorously violent. This is Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino's into this kind of stuff, right? This is, no spoiler alert, well, semi-spoiler alert, Game of Thrones totally steals this scene. Everybody's now really panicked about that. But <laughs> this is not what you expect. This is not how people are saved. God is saving his people through unexpected means. He's telling them a ridiculous story. He climbs out on the front porch. Uh, nobody actually knows what that word porch means, and so a lot of commentators think it means he climbed out through the sewer, and then commentators teach the whole like um, Shawshank Redemption illustration. But I don't know what it happens. No one chases Ehud. That's the point of that exit. Servant door. The servants saw the doors were locked. They assume Eglin was doing big business. After a while... Trying to keep it tasteful. Uh, they're embarrassed about how long he's in there. I mean, that's an embarrassing moment when people who are there are like, wow, we're embarrassed for you. <laughs> they open the door. He's on the ground. And he's dead. And he's covered in his own mess. It's in the Bible. Not apologizing for it. But it is weird. <laughs> this is not how Israel imagined getting saved. That's the point. But they proceed to defeat the Moabites. And the text says, and this is important, the land had rest for 80 years. And judges, when the deliverer saves them, the story always ends, the land had rest. The people had rest. 
And the story has to hit us as unexpected and ridiculous. You can't see it coming because salvation doesn't happen this way. This is bizarre. It doesn't come from this kind of person. And there's two applications to that. One small one and one big one. And the first small application is this. God doesn't need hot shots for the kingdom. He doesn't need big shots. The, rare, the kingdom of God is rarely built with big shots. In fact, hot shots mentality about success and power usually are the reverse of the kingdom of God. I remember when I was really insecure about my preaching, talking to an older preacher, and he just said, if God needed a Tim Keller in every pulpit, he would have one. But he doesn't. He mostly uses bumbling, insecure people. In Exodus 4, Moses, who delivered Israel from Egypt, right, was the Lord's servant, says, Lord, how can you use me? I don't speak well. He probably would have said, I can't talk good, right? (laughs) And he talks to God about how he's slow of speech and he's ineloquent. The kingdom of God comes through meager means. This is cool and unstanford. The kingdom of God comes through simple acts of service, getting coffee with somebody new. Through kindness, giving someone a ride to an airport. I've never been to a college campus where more people use the airport shuttle, and it makes me sad, honestly. Right? Forgiveness. Forgiveness floods life back into people and into friendships that are dying. Compassion, patience, worship, and fumbling awkward conversations about the cross of Jesus and the resurrection. Those are the means of the kingdom of God. And you know what you don't have to be to do those things? You don't have to be very much. You don't have to be a hot shot. In fact, you know what better glorifies the kingdom of God? Is when God does beautiful things through nobodies. Our addiction to becoming somebody's may very well not be enhancing our ability to serve the kingdom of God, but actually sabotaging our ability to serve the kingdom of God. We might be more effective as ministers of the gospel and as Christians on campus if we were more committed to being nobodies and less addicted to becoming a somebody. That's the small application, but here's the bigger one. You know what cognitive pattern recognition is? I do, because I read Wikipedia this afternoon. (laughs) Not all of it, just the entry on cognitive pattern recognition. Um, So I'm in the C's, but uh, cognitive pattern recognition is when you become so familiar with a pattern that you develop the ability to see it every time it shows up. It's actually how you learn to read. It's how you learn how to make associations and all this kind of stuff. What judges is, and the reason we're going to hear the same story over and over again but with different judges and different moments in history, is it's spiritual pattern recognition. It's training us to understand who Jesus is when He shows up. The Old Testament is really hard to read, and this passage is really hard to read. And I want us to read it together, but Luke 24, 27 is the key to unlocking the whole Old Testament. If you want to know how to read the Old Testament, you've got to read Luke 24, 27, at one verse over and over again. Jesus is talking with two guys on the road to Emmaus, And it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted them in all of the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the Old Testament, you need to know it was always about me. It was always, it was giving us a cognitive pattern recognition for the Savior we needed. And the story of Ehud is so important because it trains us to know to look for the deliverer that wouldn't make sense. 
who was weak, who wasn't a warrior, who would save us by means we couldn't have predicted, predicted, the one who would deliver us from our ridiculous, lazy addiction to sin, Ehud didn't finish the job. The land had rest for 80 years. It got into trouble again. We'll see next week. And Jesus is the true and final judge who offers us the deliverance that we do need, the one that we wouldn't expect through means we wouldn't have expected. And He brings eternal rest, the rest that Ehud could never bring. What do we need in Jesus that Israel couldn't have gotten from Ehud? How is Jesus sufficient in ways that this judge isn't? What did Ehud alleviate? The physical circumstances of Israel's oppression. That's a good thing, right? The oppression was real and it was horrible and they cried out to God for deliverance and God delivered them. But what happened to Israel over time? They fell back. Their propensity to chase idols comes back over and over and over again. And actually the book of Judges just gets worse. It ends in a darker place than it begins. And this is a really important point. Christianity is not that God can... If you come and do business with God and if you're religious enough, He's going to fix your circumstances in this life. That thing you want fixed right now. Right? Your family, your relationships, your grades, your illness. And if that's the main way you relate to God, Christianity is going to be very frustrating for you because that's not what it purports to offer. God, please make the circumstances of my life better. Fix this situation. Make these things go away. Bring this into my life. And if that's the way you relate to Him, is He your God? Or are you asking God to serve your idols? Because I think what we're often doing is using God to get what we really want. Because God actually procured better circumstances for Israel, didn't He? They're like, hey God, help us out here. He's like, alright. And it didn't fix them, did it? It made life a little bit more pleasant externally for a season, but it didn't fix them. Because they didn't need a new situation. They needed to become new people. They needed to become the kind of person that no longer chased after other things people who stopped chasing what couldn't save them. We need to be saved from the brokenness that's in here. The brokenness that is me. More than the brokenness that's out there. And that's why the blessing and the joy of Christianity is not the stuff. God giving you stuff. The joy and the blessing of Christianity is God Himself. The prize is God Himself. The prize is the Heavenly Father. The prize is knowing that He loves you. The prize is knowing that He will be with you. We just sang a song, Abide With Me. I hope you all pay attention to that song. It's one of my favorites. But it's heavy. And what that song is, is a prayer for God to be with us on our deathbed. Did you know you just prayed that prayer? You prayed about your death right before this. And it says, when other helpers fail and comforts flee... When all the other things that are so important to us, you know how important they are on your deathbed? They're all about done. And we asked, God abide with me because He's the one thing that endures. The prize is that He will never reject you. The prize is God. God wants you. He's not a tool for getting stuff out of the life that you want. All of the stuff of life, moth and rust destroy. And that's not just material things, but reputation and popularity and influence. Everything that isn't God Himself. The stuff is just trinkets. God is the treasure. And so we need a better deliverer than Ehud. 
We need a God who gives Himself, who delivers us from our propensity to give ourselves to everything but Him. We need a God who recovers our hearts. And that means He's going to come in a way you wouldn't expect. He comes in the form of a servant. That Jesus comes washing feet. That He comes forgiving. That He comes to die. Saviors are not supposed to die. Deity is not supposed to die. They're supposed to be heroes. They're supposed to use power. But His profound wisdom is so much higher than we can imagine. And He knows the only way to recover our hearts to Him is if He did for us the very thing that's inconceivable a God would do, which is to forgive. Deities aren't supposed to forgive. And none of the other things you worship forgive. Stanford doesn't forgive. Sports don't forgive. Money doesn't forgive. The world doesn't forgive. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is horrible. Because it is choosing to be weakened by someone's offense instead of bringing justice back on them. It's choosing to absorb victimhood so that the victimizer doesn't suffer. This is horrible, right? Forgiveness is suffering so that the offender does not have to suffer. It is protecting an offender from suffering. Forgiveness is Jesus bearing the guilt of our sin on the cross so that we don't have to. And Isaiah 53 tells us about Jesus, whose character is also teaching us about Jesus. That God's servant would have no form or majesty that we would look at Him. He would not be attractive. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was not popular. He's still not popular. He would be a man of sorrows. He would be sad mostly. Acquainted with grief. As, uh, and as one from whom men hid their faces because He was despised. And we esteemed Him not. And He bore our griefs, and He carried our sorrows, and we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgression, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we are healed. He's wounded so that we can be healed. So that we can be delivered from the ridiculousness of our sin. Forgiveness has to happen for us to be right with God. Able to enjoy Him. Because you can't enjoy a relationship as long as an offense resides within it. The reason you may feel like you're not enjoying God is probably not because you didn't get everything you wanted from Him. And it's also probably not because the music wasn't cool enough at RUF. It's because there's sin between us and Him and we've failed to see that the main thing we need in order to rest and to enjoy a relationship with God is the offense between us has to be removed. The main thing we need from God is forgiveness. It has to happen for us to truly be delivered so that we can have not the rest that a job and a mate and a Tesla provides, which is a very temporary form of rest, but the kind of rest that comes with knowing that God is yours and you are God's. And by His grace, He's wiped away the sin that stood between you. That changes you. That's the deliverance that we need. It's an unexpected deliverance from a suffering and serving deliverer for ridiculous people. Let's pray.